Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5 at verse 17. Second Samuel 5, starting at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. When the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. So David came to Baal-perazim and defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore he named that place Baal-perazim. They abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. Now the Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go directly up, circle around behind them, and come at them in front of the balsam trees. It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. Then David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah in Ohio The sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it outside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds, that you would give us an understanding of this passage that leads us to obeying your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so the first part of this, chapter 5, we see, um, well, a little review first. David is, is now king over all 12 tribes. Of Israel, he is. Um, he has now set his sights outside of Israel to the enemies of God because he has peace within the tribes and is not trying to bring them together. And so, the first place that he uh, goes is to fight against the Philistines, these enemies, long-standing enemies of the kingdom. And so, we see that he's trying after he brings. Um, after he brings order as far as his political um, work, he uh, is going to bring military order. And so, um, what is notable to you about 
this section. This is 5.17 through 25. Anything notable to you? Yeah, he's humble. He, he inquires of the Lord both times before he goes into battle so that he um, can know whether or not the Lord would even have him go up to battle. And so um, the first time he asks, shall I go up? And will you give them into my hand? And the Lord says, yes, I'll give them into your hand. And he goes and um, he defeats them. And then the second time, this rather extraordinary situation, right? The Philistines came up and... and um, David inquired the Lord, and he said, and uh, God said to him, you shall not go directly up, circle around behind them, and come at them in front of the balsam trees, and then there's going to be the sound of, of troops marching, right? It shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then you shall act promptly, for then the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the army of the Philistines. So it seems like some kind of miracle where the sound of of troops and uh, is is produced, um, and so uh, David goes out under these commands of God and uh, defeats, strikes down the Philistines uh, that time as well. Um, one one thought on this before we turn to chapter six, where um, most of most of uh, we'll spend most of our time. Um, Christ is our King, right? Christ is our king, he's our prophet, our priest, and our king. Can anybody, does anybody know the shorter catechism question about um, Christ as king? What is the, what does Christ execute as, in the office of a king? Who's got it? No, no one's got it. Uh, it's, it's one of the better, uh, it, it, well, they're all good, but um, it's one of the better answers. It said it says Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. So he's not just subduing enemies. He first of all subdues his own people to himself and rules them. And then in ruling and defending us, so in governing us and, and defending us from enemies, and then in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So he conquers us, then he protects us, and then he conquers all of his and our enemies. And we see that in what David is doing here. We see him as a type of Christ um, taking out the enemies of God, um, bringing the people together, ruling them, but then also um, restraining the enemies. And so um, we see uh, Christ in him at those points. So now... Um, so that's, that's what's going on, and, and uh, so we've seen political order come, we've seen some military order come in him attacking and defeating the Philistine, Philistines, and now he turns to worship and um, works to get worship in order. And he realizes that um, the ark is not where it should be. The ark is not where it should be, and... Um, and so he gathers together chosen men, 30,000 chosen men. David arises, went with all the people who were with him to Baal, Judah, to bring up from, uh, from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Okay, so what's, what is the ark? What, what's the ark? Why is it important? Where... Where and what and why and who and how? Any thoughts on that? I think you got it, Ben. Thanks. It's definitely symbolic of God's presence. That's for sure. And, and even more so, it, it was the place of God's presence. Um, in, in Where? In the wilderness. Well, more specifically than that, in the tabernacle, more specifically than that. Okay, so not the holy place, not the courts, not the outer courts, but the holy of holies, the ark would be in the holy of holies. And God says in Exodus 25, you know, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. 
That's what God says in the construction of this sanctuary. Um, and, and you think of that description that we get of the ark here, which is called by the name, the name of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. Why does it say he's enthroned above the cherubim? Is that like his position in heaven? Is that, what does that mean? The cloud would hover between some physical cherubim? The, the golden cherubim, right? Okay, so you had the ark, and the ark contained was a box. It was a golden box, right? And then on the top of the ark, you have a covering, and that's called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, you have two cherubim who are covering their faces, right? Um, one arm, yeah, something like that. And God would meet um, with in a sense, the high priest there, and God's presence would be between those cherubim or on those cherubim um, in that specific place. This was the holiest, holiest place when it comes to God's presence. Um, who, could, who could go to that place? High priest, how many times? Once a year, and was it easy for him to get there? What did he have to do? What didn't he have to do? I mean, there was purifications, there was uh, slaughtering of animals, there was changing of clothes and washing of body, and then, I mean, there was, there was a long ritual that God required, um, that God required of, of the high priest, just the high priest, once a year going into that place, um, to make atonement on the Day of Atonement, right? And Exodus 25:22 says of the mercy seat in there, it says again that there I will meet with you. And so this was the place of God meeting with the high priest. Um, Exodus 26, 31 to 33, um, the ark is said to be within the veil, right? The ark is, is what's the veil? It's a curtain, right? It's just a large curtain made with various colored uh, cloth. And it separated, uh, it divided the holy place into the holy place and the holy of holies, right? And the veil, um, it, it is said, will, be, will serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. And then you can go to Leviticus 16 and read about all the regulations that that Aaron had in approaching um, that place once a year to make atonement. Um, so, here's another question. The tabernacle was portable, wasn't it? It went around with them. It's the difference between the tabernacle and the temple. The temple is a permanent structure. The, te- the tabernacle is a tent meant to go around with them so what happens to the ark when, when they're moving? Does anybody know what was supposed to happen with, with all the, the ark and the lampstand and all these, these uh, parts of the, ta- of the tabernacle cultus? Good. By a by Levites, right? By a particular um, family of Levites, right? The Kohathites. The Kohathites were to were were given charge of moving the ark. This one family um, of of Levites, and they they had to they, it had to be covered. So it was covered like in porpoise skins and and other things that, that, uh, that would cover um, and, and make it not visible. And then there were poles that went through it and extended out, and they had to move all of the apparatus of the tabernacle with these poles. And it's very, it's very clearly laid out. I'm trying to find um, the reference, but I'm not. Um, uh, Numbers 4. 
Yeah, if you, if you turn to Numbers 4, the duties of the Kohathites, right. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Take a census of descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their ha- father's households, from 30 years and upward, even to 50 years old, all who entered the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, they would take it down and I imagine uh, fold it over the ark so that it wasn't seen um, somehow. And... Uh, and cover the ark of the testimony with it, and they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it, and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue, and shall insert its poles. There are those poles. Over the table of the bread of presence they shall spread a cloth of blue, and put on it the dishes and the pans and the sacrificial bowls, and the jars for the drink offering, and the continual bread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material, and cover the same with a covering of porpoise skin, does anybody know what porpoise skin is? Is it really porpoise skin? I mean, I meant to look this up, but I didn't get to it. Badger skin. Goat skin. Porpoise skin is so much cooler than goat skin. I mean, <clears throat> okay. So we some sort of animal skin. And they shall insert its poles, then they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand for the light along with its lamps and its snuffers and its trays and all its oil vessels which, by which they serve it. And they shall put it and all its utensils in a covering of skin and shall put it on the carrying bars. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of porpoise skin and shall insert its poles. And they shall take all the utensils of the service which, with which they serve in the sanctuary and put them in the blue cloth and cover them with a covering of porpoise skin and put them on carrying bars. Then they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. So we got blue cloths, we got purple cloths, we got scarlet cloths um, over these portions of the, of the temple uh, work. Then they shall take... Uh, They shall also put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the firepans, the forks and shovels and the basins and all the utensils of the altar, and they shall spread a a cover of porpoise skin over it and insert its poles. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. So the sons of Kohath even haven't, haven't even done anything to this point. It's been the priestly duty to go and cover up all those gold utensils, right, and objects of worship. When the camp is set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. So they will not touch the holy objects and die. So these Kohathites, even though this was their duty, everything was covered up very well so that they didn't touch them because if they touched those holy objects, they would die. Right. So remember that. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come in and carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Alright, so the, the Kohathites were the, were the brawny men who got to move things. You know? Two, two men in a truck of Israel. Um, except no truck, right? That's the key to this passage. Um, so... So that's the background to this. And then we go back, back to um, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we have this incident that happens. David wants to bring order to worship. His motives seem to be genuine and good. He brings around all of Israel and all of the, the, um, 
the uh, people of Israel. David arose, went with all the people, and um, they went to where the ark was. They want to bring the ark back. They placed the ark of God where? On a new cart, right? I mean, they want to show reverence to the ark, and so they don't place it just on an old junkie cart. They put it on a new cart, right? They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it to the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Uzzah in Ohio. The sons of Abinadab were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ohio was walking ahead of the ark. And so um, they put the ark on the, on the cart. They're walking along. Ohio is up front, or is he out back? Um, walking ahead of the ark. Ohio is out front. Uzzah, I assume, is out back. And everybody's rejoicing. Everybody is worshiping God. Everybody's excited. This is, you got to understand that the ark was the center of the, the centerpiece of the worship of Yahweh. And the, the Philistines had, had messed with it and had, had taken it, and now they're bringing it back to restore worship in Israel. And so David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Does everybody know what a lyre is? No other than somebody who doesn't tell the truth. What's a lyre? A stringed instrument. Do you pluck it? You saw it? Like with a bow? I think it's a plucked instrument. It's like a lute. It's like a, an early lute of kind. Um, the, the guitar would eventually come from the lyre, I think. But um, yeah, it's a plucked instrument. Uh, and uh, just so you know that, it, there is, some, um, there is some, some creative translating that you have to do when you talk about the instruments of the Old Testament because some of these instruments no longer exist. And, uh, and so modern instruments have been put in the place of those instruments. And so, um, so we have to be a little bit careful about that. But nonetheless, it's not about the instruments. It's about the rejoicing that they did with those instruments before God. And so just think of the scene. Think of the scene. The ark of God is moving out of the house of Abinadab. The, it's, it's coming back among the people of Israel. The people are dancing and rejoicing. And then they come to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God, took hold of it, and falls dead. And why does he take hold of it? He takes hold of it because it seemed as if the oxen were going to overturn the cart. Right? The oxen were going to overturn the cart and, and Uzzah did not want to see the ark on the ground, fallen, broken, um, disrespected that way. And yet, he reaches out for it, and the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his irreverence. Now turn with me to 1 Chronicles. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 13. Is helpful. It gives us some more details. First Chronicles thirteen one through fourteen. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, "If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities and pasture lands, that they may meet us and let us bring back the ark of our God to us." For we did not seek it in the days of Saul. I mean, that says something to you about the, the poor worship of God that went on during the days of Saul. They did not even seek the centerpiece of Israel's worship, the, the centerpiece of the commands of God for His worship. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath, Hamath 
to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned above the cherubim where His name is called. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah, which means breakthrough of Uzzah, to this day. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. So we get this, we get this here twice. Some of the details are different, and I'm not going to worry about those. But the question is, we come to this passage and we think, man, it seems like an incredibly harsh judgment of God against Uzzah for reacting when the cart is almost upset, right? I mean, it was almost like we, we all in that position would flinch if we saw the cart going and would, would, would just automatically reach out. So what do we do with this passage? What, how do we think about this rightly as Christians? And there's a premise that has to come first. That's right. Yeah, the premise is, is that everything that God does is good. Everything that God does is good. If, if you disagree with that, then you un-God God, or you make God less of a power than your own reason, right? Or you, you believe that your judgment somehow um, should rise to the level of being able to teach God. And yet, what we have to submit, first of all, is that all that God does is good. There is, no, um, there is no sin within God. And so what He does here is good. What He does here is just. What He does here is, is appropriate. And um, so we have, to just, we have to go with that premise. If we start with the premise, well, it seems unfair. You know, God's, uh, God's being a little mean here. God seems to have it out for Uzzah. Well, then we've already... Um, then our theology has radically changed. So the first thing is, is God is holy. He can do whatever He pleases. That's what the Psalms say. He can do whatever He pleases. And it's always good. It's always righteous. It's always to the end of His own glory. It's always for the good of His people. And, um, and so that's the premise. What, what do we say after that? Just because you have a burning desire to do something for the Lord doesn't mean you're going to do it the right way or that it's legitimate or that He wants you to do it, right? Your passion is not a reason to do anything. The law of God is the reason you should do anything, right? But your passion and your feelings, not, not really um, what you should uh, guide your, your world, your, your life with. Right? Of course, we're going to have deep affections. We're going to have deep things we're passionate about. We're going to have, but I'm telling you that your imagination and your passions and your thoughts and your heart are not the way you should lead yourself. The law of God and the Word of God is, is where you 
find God's will. Okay. Sure, I, I think he's um, I think he's using this as an opportunity to teach them about his holiness again, because it says that Uzzah sinned by being irreverent. Right, it's his irreverence. He touched what was not supposed to be touched, and that's the other thing that we have to keep in mind. Should this have been any surprise to Israel? No, it was written in the law in the book of Numbers that they were not to touch the ark. Right? Not even the Kohathites who were the ones to move it. They were, you were not to touch the ark. The priests laid things over it. And um, there was a very, cap- or a, a very um, complex system here to, to guard people in God's mercy because this was a holy thing. And God's holiness breaks out. Right? And here it's not breaking out um, if they're doing it the right way. And... Who should have known this? The priests, the Levites, David himself, right? Who should have known the law? All these people should have known that this was the case. And they should have never put that up on the cart. And they never should have left it uncovered if it was uncovered. They never should have even attempted any of this if they had a proper reverence for the law of God. I don't know if I have an answer. I don't know. Anybody else have any ideas? Yeah. And the anger of the Lord breaks out against his own people. Yeah, I mean, the objects of the breakout are different too. The enemies get it. And in this one, it's the people of God who are broken out against. And so, I mean, we learn from just that that God is, a respect, is not a respecter of persons, right? He doesn't look at somebody's pedigree and decide that because they have a certain education that he is unable to discipline them. He, he is, uh, uh, is equitable in his discipline of people. All right, so what, what else? What other observations do you take out of this? Now they know the rules. Now they know the law. Now that one man has died for their ignorance, now they know and realize that God meant what He wrote when He said, put the poles in and carry it by the poles by the sons of Kohath, the Levites. Don't put it on a new cart, even though that might be more convenient. Do it as He um, requires of it. As He requires so they failed to follow the directions of God. They, Uzzah, in not knowing the law, treats God with contempt. I mean, think about that. It may have been unintentional, but it was, it was from his ignorance of the law or from his not being taught by the priests and the Levites, not being taught by the king what was right. You know, and so, so not, not knowing the law... <clears throat> He breaks it and shows irreverence toward God. And so God God breaks out against him. God breaks out against him in order to establish his holiness, right? In the face of their irreverence. And and that, 
you know, they treated holy things lightly by not knowing what God required of them. They just treated holy things lightly. And that phrase, treating holy things lightly, is, is the church today, isn't it? Nothing's holy anymore. Nothing seems to be sacred. There's no, there's no self-examination that comes into play when you come to the Lord's table. There's, no, um, th- there's just no, uh, there's no reason really to listen to our pastors and elders because all they're giving is, is advice that we can take or leave. There's no real pastoral authority. There's no reason to... to to fear holiness today. And so we just treat holiness, we treat holy things very, very lightly today. And that's, that's us. I'm not even thinking about mega churches that have their pastor ride in on a motorcycle, you know, or things like that, which is just, is, should be scandalous to us to import entertainment like that and, and, and games into the worship of the Lord. Right now, David is angry. Let's talk about David's anger for a minute. Why? What's going on there with David? What's going on with David? Should 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 could I mean should his reaction have been different? Is this inappropriate? What What do you think? Well, that, that would be nice, but it seems that he's angry with the Lord because then it later it says David was afraid of the Lord that day, right? Displaced anger. You're getting all psychological on me. Man. Bring some Freud in here and we can get really crazy. Um. Yeah. Yeah, I mean David David I mean David's responding as a as a normal human being in the light of some drastic um intense happenings. I mean a man touched the ark and instantly dies by the the wrath of God being poured out upon him. It's going to provoke some sort of reaction. Now now anger um here is quite is is quite dangerous to be angry with God, to be angry with what God has dispensed um, is is dangerous and and if he didn't soften his heart, you can think of a man becoming embittered against the Lord and turning from his ways and going to serve the enemies of God rather than serve God himself. But I think we see repentance in David. He's unwilling to move the ark, but then finally he comes around and he says, okay, we do need to get the ark into the right place. And, and Obed-Edom gets this three months of, of I don't know what kind of blessings um, in his home with the ark there. And so David sins by, by um, relegating the ark away from Israel again. And then it leads to blessing, and then he's like, okay, we need to have the blessing of God and the presence of God in the midst of us. And so I think that's his repentance and coming to terms with this, and certainly his doing it, doing it in the right way would be, um, would be repentance. Um, any of the thoughts on David's response? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that's the effect it had. Um, some some applications here that I stole from um, a guy named John Calvin. 
that I thought were helpful. Here are Calvin's applications from this passage. First of all, notice that in the passage it says, I'm trying to see the verse, maybe it was in the parallel. It makes a contrast. I think it was in the First Corinthians or First Chronicles 13 passage. It makes a contrast to the um, the pursuit of the ark during the time of Saul and during David. And um, Calvin says, "Don't seek God halfway, like it was sought in the time of Saul. He is the mainspring of our whole life, right?" And so Saul Saul was a man who was forsaken by the Lord, who's who had the Holy Spirit, evil spirits put upon him, and uh, he did not pursue the Lord, and, and yet now we see David trying to bring into um, regulation, into the Israel, the worship of God, and not in a halfway sense. We're not, to, we're not called to follow God halfway. Halfway, but all the way. Um, the second of Calvin's applications was make worship easy. Make worship easy. Right? This is why David brought the ark back, so that it would be in a place where the people could come more easily and so that everyone could, be, could more easily do their duty. And he wanted the ark to be back so the people could get back to worship. And so um, the, that's why we set times on Sunday morning and not on Wednesday afternoon for worship because Sunday morning is the time when most people can, uh, can come to worship and and uh, that's an application Calvin took away from this. Um, he, I love Calvin because he, he really does not think much of man. Right? He really has a good sense of proportion. When it comes to God, he thinks God is overwhelmingly holy and perfect and man is overwhelmingly miserable and sinful. And I resonate with that, you know, at least the miserable and sinful part. He says, we must gather from this that insofar as we see the same kind of laziness in ourselves along with a lack of inclination to worship God and an absence of convenient means of worship, then we will never profit from, the worship, from worship as we should. We just see a laziness, an inclination not to worship in us. Do, do you fight that? Is that a part of your flesh that you fight against? Your inclination not to worship God? Of course it is. Of course it is. And um, we need to fight that. that. That is sin. We need to fight it and we need to take advantage of those things in worship that are convenient to us. Third, he said, we need God to make himself small so that we can have access to him. Otherwise, we would be completely shut out. Um. Hence, he talks about his presence being between the cherubim. How can God Almighty who fills the universe, how can his presence just be there? And it's so that the priests could comprehend God to a certain extent. And he says, when we have access to the preached word, and then he goes to our worship. He's like, okay, here's how God comes to us and gets little so that we can understand him. It's in the preached word. When we have access to the preached word, God speaks in a common and ordinary fashion to us. It is an illustration of his condescension. Hence, the preaching of the gospel is like God descending to earth in order to seek us. We must not abuse the simplicity of the word of God by disdaining it. Right? So easy to disdain the preaching of the word. So easy to, to get fed up with the guy who's, who's speaking in front of you and his the way he mispronounces words and the, the booger hanging out of his nose and his hair being out of place and his gut that's rumbling while he's preaching and all these things. We, it's so easy to stain God's Word, but the fact of the matter is God does it so that we can actually come to understand Him. Otherwise, He would be inscrutable. Right? He would be so far beyond us that we would not be able to... Um, he, he lisps, right, so that we can understand him. And he does that through the pastors and the leaders of his church. Um, how are they to move the ark, right? We went through all of that. They were to move the ark with the poles, da-da-da. He makes an application from that. Um, fifth, he makes this application. Um, 
was being zealous that the ark of God should not be shamed a crime worthy of punishment? He asked that question about Uzzah. Was, was, this, a, was this a crime worthy of the punishment that God um, doled out? And he says, well, will we accuse God of evil? Right? The judgments of God are a profound abyss. Think of that. The judgments of God are a profound abyss. What are some other judgments of God that sort of rub you wrong? When he tells Saul to destroy the Amalekites, right? Mother and child and everybody and all the animals. Does that seem unjust according to our standards of fairness? Well, the fact of the matter is, is God's judgments are a profound abyss. They are all good and by our finite minds and our limited view they are impossible for us to properly discern. And so it's only right that we should say they are good because he has said he, co- he commits no sin. So th- here's the other thing that comes out of that. Do you love God's judgments? Do you love the fact that God broke out against Uzzah? Or are you still angry like David? We should come to the point where we have such reverence for God that we love God's judgments. That we love them. That we can praise God for His judgments. That we can sing imprecatory psalms. <clears throat> that we can look with great, with great anticipation and joy to the final judgment of God where there's a separation between the goats and the sheep. And we should look forward to that. But if you don't like God, you will begin to pick apart His judgments. You'll begin to accuse Him of being unjust. And that is foolish. Who are you, O man, to speak back to God? Who are you, O man, to think you understand God's, the deep abyss of God's judgments? Who do you think you are? Another application, we must undertake nothing outside of our vocation. In the example of Uzzah, we are instructed not to attempt to go beyond the demands of our own office, nor beyond the condition or degree to which we are called by God. I love that. Uzzah wasn't a Kohathite, he wasn't a Levite, he should have had nothing to do with the moving of the ark, right? He, he, he went beyond his office, he went above his pay grade, he, he did what he wasn't supposed to do, and Calvin is saying, learn from that to be humble. Learn from that that, that you, you, if you're not an elder, are not an elder. Right? If you're not, if you're not a deacon, you're not a deacon. Um, if you're not the president of the company, you're not the president of the company. Right? Learn your place because if you overstep the place and the vocation that God has given to you, you're gonna, you are going to end up. You are going to end end up um, making a mess of things, and also profaning the authority that's above you. Right? Don't get involved in business that is not yours. Right? That is so hard for us. Don't get involved in business that isn't yours. If we did that, our lives would be so wonderfully calm, right? It's when we get up in uh, places where God has not called us to and then start spewing our own judgments where much sin happens. Do not go beyond, uh, Calvin says, do not go beyond your boundaries like wild horses. Right? Don't. Be like a wild horse. All right, another application from Calvin. You can see that Calvin has, um, has a great brain for application. Let us not come to him like hypocrites who only twist their mouths and make fun of God. In other words, tremble before the majesty of God. Don't come lightly as Uzzah did. Eighth, God may, um, may have killed Uzzah, but who... But he may have also pardoned him, right? And brought him into his eternal presence. So he may have struck out at Uzzah, but it may have been God's means of ushering Uzzah into his presence. And so it's not all judgment here. 
It could be that this was God's mercy in taking Uzzah out of this life and into the next, into his presence. This is mercy clothed in God's judgments. Ninth, David was annoyed with God's judgments. We see that even those who are disposed to the service of God always have something that holds them back. So that often, for very little reason, they are turned aside from the right path. Very little reason can turn us aside from the right path. Even those who are disposed to the service of God, those who really want to serve Him, one little temptation can draw somebody away from the church. One temptation. One meeting with so-and-so, or one hit of this or that, or one opportunity to make this kind of money. And even the one who is disposed to serve God will turn aside from the right path. Ten, and finally, our conclusion should not be this. By this passage, our conclusion should not be this, that it is impossible to approach God. That is not what we should, we should end with. It is possible to approach God because Jesus Christ, in His holiness, has made that way possible. Think of all the temple furniture. Think of all the fulfillment in Christ. Think of the breaking of the veil. Think of us being able to come into the presence of God. And it's all because of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ to make that happen. And so don't use this passage as a reason not to approach God. You, can't, you have to end with Christ when it comes to this passage. God has brought it, or Jesus has brought us near to our Father in heaven. And that is mercy. That is mercy. Not that we can now treat holy things irreverently. We can't. We must approach God with sobriety and with care, with self-examination. Um, we must not treat holy things lightly. But, we also can approach God through Jesus Christ, clothed in His righteousness, and God will not break out against us. He will merely welcome us and lavish all the blessings of heaven upon us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus, who has brought us near to You, has raised us up into the heavenlies. And Father, we, we pray that we would learn from this passage to honor You, to respect You, Father, to examine ourselves, and uh, Father, to, to trust in Jesus Christ for our righteousness. Father, I pray that You would give us repentance where our hearts are being drawn away, where we are going down the wrong path, where we are beginning to be embittered towards You, O oh, Father, I pray that You would grant to us repentance and we would abhor those thoughts and that we would love You. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.